Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast host. Hi, I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 314 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Laura talks with Dan Cable about highlight reels and why you need one in your life. Today's podcast is brought to you by Postali, ESQ Marketing, Cosmolex, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned. We'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. So hey, Laura, today I thought we should talk about something that we see come up a lot, which is, I don't know, stops, obstacles, frustrations, right? Like those things that get in our way and make us sort of want to just quit. Yeah. And I think we all know that they're out there. I mean, how many images of entrepreneurship or business ownership have you seen where they make it look like it's climbing mountains and going down into valleys or riding a roller coaster? So we all know there's going to be ups and downs, but it's so easy to want to quit. Like it's one thing to know it in your head. And then when you really hit the obstacle and you're just like, I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to push through this. I don't want to solve the problem or figure it out. And that's actually the exact moment that you need to lean in and try to work through it. Um, So we see this come up in a lot of ways. Definitely. I see it in my personal life. Like it's like, oh, this is difficult. Like, forget it. It's going to take too long. Let me just get away from it entirely. How do you mentally bring yourself back to the point of wanting to work through the obstacle that's in front of you when it feels really sticky? I think first is, I mean, like, this is where having that, you know, coach or colleague or friend or spouse or whoever's in your support network, for me at least, sometimes just saying it out loud and starting the conversation about it allows me to learn so much because sometimes I don't even realize I'm doing it. And then it's when I have that conversation. So for me right now, I, you know, it's with my business partner and I'll be like, oh, you know, I'm struggling with this thing. And then in that conversation, you, you get to discover what it is that you're feeling about it or what's holding you back or why is this thing feeling so hard? And that's honestly when I have some of my biggest breakthroughs. Yeah, I think it can happen in two ways. So either that person sees it in a totally different perspective and pushes you with questions or comments to help you get to the answer. Or I hear this a lot, um, and sometimes people always beat themselves up about it, but we'll do like a lab coaching session and someone will talk through their thing and then go, you know what? I think I just answered my question. (laughs) It's the talking out of it where you just work through it and kind of come to a better conclusion. So it sounds like the first step is to acknowledge that you are having difficulty with this thing. Just own it and put it out there and maybe find that trusted person or coach that can help you work through it and and sometimes maybe even dig into the root of the issue. I find sometimes the thing that I think is frustrating or blocking me, that's not actually the thing. It's like a red herring for where the real problem is. And it's in that conversation that you can dig that out, figure out what your next step is. Yes, same. You know, I have to talk through all my problems. <laughs> so, <laughs> oftentimes I'll just be like talking and I'll be like, oh, and I just totally pit on the problem, didn't I? And what I need to do next and solve it. Yeah, but you have to go through that exercise. And you, I think you can remember too, 
whether you're in a law firm by yourself, you have team members or you should have coaches that can talk this through with you. It's actually not on you to make every decision and work through every difficult thing on your own. I think there's this like entrepreneur pride of like, oh, you just push and push and push and you hustle all day long and you just, you figure it out on your own. You get scrappy and you figure it out. And it's like, no, you can get much better and faster results by focusing on who can I ask to help me with this? Who's going to be my board of advisors? I mean, we've talked about that before on the podcast, making sure you have those people in your life because really it's not all on you. And, you know, it doesn't have to all be linear, but also like not all at the same level, right? Like I think some days we beat ourselves up because we think, oh, I haven't really made much progress this today or this week or this month or quarter sometimes it's because you don't even see it, right? Like you need to stop and you look back and we do this at our quarterly retreats where we list all the things we did in the quarter. And then we'll be like, oh my God, we actually did a lot. But, you know, don't beat yourself up if it feels like you're not making progress as quickly as you want or as much as you want. The key is that idea of incrementalism and that you just keep at it and 1% and you chip away at the next thing and then you chip away at the next thing. And suddenly you are unlocking big things. You just might not realize it. So don't allow yourself to, to get frustrated or get stuck or feel like you're stuck. Like if you're feeling that and you're feeling that tension, like you said, that's a sign that you need to really pay attention and keep going through it. And this topic lines up so perfectly with the whole theme of this episode. So if this conversation piqued your interest, we're going to have a brief sponsored conversation with Jim from Postali and then my conversation with Dan. Hey, y'all. It's Zach, the legal tech advisor here at Lawyerist, and I'm here today with Jim Christie, the CEO of Postali. Now, Postali is a full-service marketing company for law firms, which means they handle everything from search engine optimization and website building to content marketing and direct mailing. Jim, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Always good to be here. So today, kind of adding to what we were talking about in the webinar that we did, we want to talk about source attribution and kind of awareness of, of where people's leads come from, right? Right. Yeah. And we were riffing here a little bit before the podcast. And I was saying that, you know, something that most lawyers don't come and ask is how do you do your marketing source attribution? Because it's just not a phrase that lawyers would utter, or unless you're a marketer, you don't use that language. But what we're talking about is where do your leads come from and how much attention should you be paying to that? And what are the KPIs around it? And I think that's something that isn't discussed as early in the process as it should be when you're talking about your marketing. It's usually like the tactics. What are you doing? But not what do you actually want to get? What's a viable cost per case for you to be profitable so that you're not spending all of your profit back into your marketing machine? And I think to, to bring it back into something that's that's practical is that let's use Google Ads as an example, because this is probably the most important source that you want to track because it's so easy to lose so much money so quickly and not know what's happening at all with the dollars that you're spending. So let's just say, for example, in, in Google ads, you really want to be tight on knowing how much is it costing me to get a lead? And then how much is it costing me to get a client out of that? And you can think about more advanced metrics down the road of, are the leads I'm getting through those sources more valuable or do they close at a higher frequency or provide higher retainer amounts or things like that. You know, those are more advanced things. But first and foremost, if you're spending money on a per click basis, you need to know what it's costing. And unless you have tracking set up, you're relying on imperfect information because Google ads 
by default is not going to capture all of your leads, especially if you have online chat or you're getting leads through your contact form that isn't connected back. So sometimes it's the use of platforms to, to show different phone numbers, but also just making sure that your the technical integrations between Google ads and other sources are talking talking and sharing information so that you have the right data. And, and so it, if I'm not setting that up appropriately, well, then I'm not getting the right information. But I, I think one of the things that, you know, for me as an attorney, I think that's daunting. That's that's huge. I go into Google Analytics, I go into Google paid ads, and and it's, it's pretty confusing in there, you know? And I, I think that's why I would lean toward just being like, okay, well, I spend X amount per month and I get X amount of leads and I'm not going to drill down into that any further. What's the kind of like main gain there that, that somebody gets from drilling into that? I think it's making sure that you're iterating at the speed that you need to so that you're not wasting money and you're maximizing your ROI. So for example, can you be successful in using a platform like Google Ads? And I'll just keep using that example because it's so, I've just seen so many people go astray there. You don't have to have this to be successful you can get lucky. Uh, for example, if you're in a market that's not super competitive and your case value is high, you may be fine to say, look, I know I'm bringing in more than what I'm spending. But the fact that we're seeing now in any competitive market, cost of ads is continuing to go up and every dollar matters. And even if you have an extensive budget, every dollar matters. So you need to think about what should I be spending my, my money on? And if something isn't converting, you have to stop that. You know, you have to stop doing that. Um, not to say you stop doing that immediately, but you stop doing that after you have enough data to say, we tried this and it didn't work and now we need to move on and we need to try something else. But it's there's also an opportunity cost. And I think this is something that doesn't get talked about in source attribution of if you always have one marketing source that can deliver you leads at a cost below all others, it would kind of be counterintuitive to spend your money anywhere else. Right. Right, you should just always go to the place that brings you the most effective and efficient leads. And if you have source attribution done properly, you can kind of look at your array of marketing and say, you know, in SEO, I'm getting leads for eighty dollars. For Google Ads, I'm getting leads for thirty dollars. But for, you know, social media ads, I'm getting leads at ten dollars. Mm -hmm. I think that having a mix certainly makes sense. But when you're talking about if you have more marketing dollars to spend push money towards those lower cost per acquisition channels until you start getting diminishing returns. And I think that that's really the takeaway here is that at a high level, if you're an executive of your law firm, and that's how you're thinking about yourself and your business and, you know, kind of governing the finances and knowing what's working, that's why attribution makes so much sense because you can say, let's target those dollars where they're effective. And, and that may not mean pull money out of things that are also working to make sure that you're risk diverse, mm -hmm. but you should always be thinking about that reallocation of marketing dollars to the, your lowest cost for acquisition, assuming it's actually driving the right types of leads. You know, we're kind of making assumptions that all of these things are producing the right types of leads, but that's a big takeaway. And even when people are armed with this information, we don't always see them make those choices, uh, which is interesting as well. Mm -hmm. But that's just, uh, you know, some people have preferences to what how they want to market. So, you know, don't let those override what the numbers would would inform them. Right, right. Well, so um, I could talk to you forever, Jim, here, um, especially on on this topic. But if someone were starting, if, if it's just kind of a solo law firm, and they're saying, listen, I, I do want to start tracking this stuff. 
what's the first step kind of easy step they could take on their own to just at least get started with this? Yeah, the the easiest thing to do to get started is make sure that Google Analytics is set up properly on your website. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest using a, a platform like CallRail. I, I'm saying CallRail because we've used several different platforms and it is by far the most user-friendly, Good, especially for folks who are relatively new to call tracking. There are step-by-step tutorials. I, If you're not tech savvy, you'll still likely have some obstacles because mm-hmm. you do need to integrate pieces of technology, but there's a lot of great documentation on how to do this. And so I would say that's the, that's the first step in getting it set up. And well, and I should say there's a disclaimer too of like CallRail, there's a cost. I mean, for most firms, it's going to be a flat fee of around 30 bucks a month. And then you're going to have usage minutes. So I think when you're thinking about what's the value to the business, uh, this should go into your your operating cost mm-hmm. bucket. Uh, but that's where I would start. And you can start to get some insight around who's calling you, where are they coming from? And I would encourage anybody if they have just questions about how to set this up, we're always happy to answer those types of questions of what are best practices in this? You know, we can consult on this type of thing and it it wouldn't take long. So I think that reaching out for help is, is always a great idea. Right, right. Well, and in order to do that, they can they can always go to postali.com and there's a, a button there that just says contact us. And so if they need any more information or or want to, you know, look into this further, you guys have a lot of information on this and are are happy to help people with that. So Jim, I, I appreciate you talking to me about this today. This is, uh, you know, eye-opening for me. I certainly learned something, I, and I hope everybody else did as well. Exactly. Hi, this is Dan Cable. I'm a professor at London Business School. Welcome to the podcast. I know you have a book that has come out recently. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about that to sort of kick off our conversation? Yeah, that book is called Exceptional. And what it really comes down to is the idea that we're all exceptional, but maybe we'd like to be a little bit more often. (laughs) So if I really highlighted what it does, it says, how do we identify who we are at our best And then how do we get there a little bit more often? Mm -hmm. Which I think is a really important concept and one that's become even more important when we're dealing with so many things that are uncertain in this world. One of the concepts from your book is this idea of a highlight reel. And I often hear that term in reference to something that has a negative connotation, like, well, be aware of other people's highlight reel on social media. It sounds like you're bringing back a positive connotation to that term. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for you? Absolutely. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. To take a step back, I I worry about many things when publishing a book. One is like the title itself, exceptional. That sounds a little solipsistic, sounds a little arrogant, and I worry about that. And what I'm trying to do is bring the positive meaning back into that word, which is we all have times when we soar. You know, most of us have a set point, and that's our average, but then there are times when we are thriving. And I'm really interested in bringing the positive back to that word is a standout moment when you're really thriving. So that's one thing. And then you're putting your finger on another one, which it's this concept of a highlight reel. You know, 92% of athletes, of world-class athletes have what's called a highlight reel, which they watch before performing. And what it does is it shows them what they're capable of. It shows their potential to them. It reminds them 
that you can do this. You are this good. And it not only boosts confidence, but it brings that self closer to the front of your brain. And that's the way I'm using this. The highlight reel is getting information from family and friends and work colleagues and mentors about times that they have seen you at your best so that you can remember or highlight or make salient what it is about me when I'm making my best impact. Does that make sense to you, Laura? Yeah, it does make sense. And I think one of the challenges is, and you point this out in your book, that we often don't do this. We feel like it's very socially awkward. And sometimes the conversations are awkward, but we feel weird asking other people about that. What do you recommend? I mean, is it just something we have to get over or is there something else we should do? Um, because I feel like going to your friends and family and, and asking this right off the bat, they're probably going to be like, why? why are you asking yes. me this? Yeah. What's wrong yeah. with you? Do you need right, help? Right. Are you sick? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? Yes. Okay. Well, number one, you're just right. Like, you know, Blanket statement, it's weird, and it's going to be weird. The way that I have put um, a soothing salve on that, if you will, a salve, is to give in order to get. You know, I first off, what's important to remember is we're not doing this so that we can stroke ourselves. You know, this isn't sort of masturbatory in that sense. This is trying to understand how we can make our best impact in the little bit of time we have left on this earth. You know, how do you get your song sung best? I think that's a really, really important mindset. That's number one. Number two is give to get, which means before asking people, tell me how I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Giving them stories and memories about times that you remember them being great. Telling employees, here's a time that I saw you delivering something unique and something valuable that I really appreciated. And I'd love to see you do more of that. I'd love to help you be there more often. It's the idea of telling a brother or a sister, we don't talk enough about this, but you're really important to me. And here are some ways that you've really helped me by acting in these ways. So it's essentially opening up the dialogue of gratitude before they die. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like giving somebody a eulogy before they're dead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you cover some really good stories about this, how we often do wait until a person is gone to say those kinds of things about them. And it's usually very beautiful and meaningful when it happens. And it really helps people with closure in the grieving process. But there is really something to be said for not waiting until someone is no longer around to hear you, you know, but building it into the kind of more more regular pattern, I think is very helpful. Laura, story that happened to me last year that actually influenced me a lot as I was finishing the book, Exceptional, is my father was really sick. He lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up. And I'm in London. And by February, he was getting really sick. And so I, I took the time to write him a highlight reel. I, I wrote um, five memories of mine about times you know, he was really a good father, in my opinion, and times that he really was there for me and so on. Anyway, I wrote those in February and my mom, I sent it to him. I wrote it out longhand, like on letter. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I used ink. <laughs> Very old school of you. <laughs> old school. And I just knew that would connect with him best. And my mom said that he set it on his little table where he puts the newspaper every day. He's put it there like permanent exhibition for himself. And that's really interesting. And then he died. He died in May. And what's really powerful, you know, without, I don't want to bring our show down here, but what was really powerful is how good it made me feel because I wasn't able to go see him. I, that was pretty heavy duty lockdown and London had shut the airports and everything. And it actually really made me feel good that I did that. It was 
very powerful for me that I had taken that moment because I couldn't speak at his eulogy and better, he heard from me what I appreciated about him. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I think, you know, things like that, you never look back on, you'll never regret doing that, right? But you might regret not doing it. And so I think it's really important that, and it makes a lot of sense that we do it for friends and family. How do you bring this over into a workplace situation where it doesn't feel weird, where your employees or colleagues don't feel like, well, why, why are you telling me this? We just work together. Why, why are we going to this level? How do you do that the right way? That's such a great question. And I have so many answers that I'm struggling a little bit. Let me give you three. The first one, and I think the most easiest, is when you're hiring new people or when you're going to have a conversation with a colleague about their performance, you know, if you're the leader and so on, have them write down three memories of a time they were at their best. This is something we've done study after study after study, where you try to talk to them about times that they feel most alive, when they feel like they're in flow, when they talk about their unique strengths, kind of lifting them up. And as a boss, that conversation is really humanizing and really energizing. And everybody has those moments. We all have moments when we thrive. And just to have somebody in authority take an interest in that, we have found that it increases customer satisfaction, 11% at Wipro in a call center. We have found that it decreases quitting by 32%. You know, we found these large, substantial, statistically significant effects for free. All you have to do is talk. <laughs> it is not, you don't even need a budget for this. You just have to have a mindset. That's the easiest. The second thing that we've done with some consulting firms, we've done this with some sales firms, is we actually create this highlight reel. So we'll have the company create one of these highlight reels for the employees where they'll go out to their, they'll have to ask and get the network. But it's like a 360. We do this anyway. It's just not just at work. It's outside work, it's siblings, it's mentors, it's family members. And it's the idea of the company takes the effort to create this report for people so that it, it's a package of memories. And boy, does that change the employment relationship. You know, it makes it relational instead of transactional. And then the third thing that I'll say about this has to do with job crafting. Once you start learning who that person is at their best and you start learning what moments at work do they really feel most alive, you have the ability to say to them, let me help you get there more often. How do I, as your leader, open up spaces that you can customize your work and personalize your work to get there more often? And I just can't tell you how much trust and respect that creates, Laura. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. We're going to continue talking about how you can continue to be a great leader in your law firm by thinking about how you can do a better job for your employees with this in just a moment. We'll be right back after hearing from our sponsors. Support for today's episode comes from Postali, a full-service legal marketing agency for law firms. The attorney-client relationship is the cornerstone of the legal profession. Just like you put the client's needs first, you deserve a marketing agency that does the same to grow your practice. Postali works with law firms nationwide and is the only full-service legal marketing agency that can call itself a marketing fiduciary. That's because, at Postali, the impressive results they achieve come from always putting your law firm's financial interests above their own. 
Imagine a relationship with a legal marketing agency that treats your investment as they would their own dollars, without hollow SEO promises, no commission-based upselling, and who won't work with your competitors. Postali is the marketing agency for legal professionals looking for 100% transparency and genuine guidance from a real marketing partner. To learn more about the benefits of working with a marketing fiduciary, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist. Contact them for a free consult and mention this podcast. Support for today's episode comes from ESQ Marketing, an agency that believes in affordable and reliable marketing for solo practitioners and small law firms. With ESQ Marketing, you'll work with experts in legal marketing. All of their intense focus is on helping attorneys generate more clients and cases from the internet. They don't work with anyone else. You'll breathe easy with low-risk, month-to-month contracts, and there are no long-term commitments. ESQ Marketing earns the right to work for your firm each and every month. Best of all, you'll get direct access to the person working on your account. No account managers to deal with and no lost in translation with your requests. To see if you're a fit, visit esq.marketing forward slash lawyerist to get started. Today's challenging and fluctuating business climate requires law firms to be flexible in the way they run their practice. Whether you're working remotely, in the office, or a combination of the two, you need to be able to work effectively and efficiently on the go at any time. That's why Cosmolex offers a cloud-based total law practice management system with built-in compliance for trust and general legal accounting. With Cosmolex, you get everything you need to run your practice in one solution with 24-7 mobile access that's both secure and easy to use. You'll be able to stay on top of all your billable activities no matter where you are, and your clients will love the direct and secure communication in the client portal. The Cosmolex migration team will ensure all your data is moved into your new system safely and securely so your firm can be up and running in no time. To learn more about Cosmolex Total Law Practice Management System, visit cosmolex.com forward slash lawyerist. Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Get ahead of your productivity for the new year with easy-to-use cross-platform snippets. Text Expander makes quick work of mundane, repetitive tasks so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to needless text entry, spelling and grammar errors, and inconsistency in your messaging. When you use Text Expander, you can say the same thing, the right thing, in just a few keystrokes. Text Expander can be used in any platform, any app, anywhere you type. These versatile snippets are better than copy and paste, and they're better than scripts and templates. They work across devices and platforms to allow you to maximize your efficiency while still customizing and personalizing your messages. So take your time back in the new year and increase your productivity with Text Expander. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. We are back. I, I think this is something that we have to think about as leaders, you have to think about if you're a manager. One of the other concepts that I pulled from your book is this idea that criticism doesn't motivate change. But I think a lot of times in the workplace, criticism is the thing that's used as the foundation for why change needs to happen. It's usually calling out something that, you know, didn't really work or finding something that's a gap or a problem and kind of leading from there. And and then you connected that to this idea of as human beings, we have this deep need to know why we do something. So it seems like there was a 
you know, a problem there if we're motivating from criticism and then we also don't get the buy-in from the other person about why we do something. Can you talk a little bit about how as leaders we can do a better job with those kinds of things? Absolutely. It's a big, important question. Back when we invented management, (laughs) if we go back to 1900, it made sense to use criticism. It, It made sense to scare people. That's one way to say it. So we use anxiety and fear to basically say, we caught you. You know, we had these metrics. You're supposed to produce X widgets. You're supposed to do X behaviors. We caught you doing less than we know that you should. And therefore, we're going to take away your raise. We're going to take away your bonus. We're going to ostracize you. We're going to make you feel stupid. And that works as long as you can tell people exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And when you want incremental improvements, if you want somebody to move from a 6% to a 6.2%, again, criticism, making people feel bad, making them feel anxious, that'll work. Because what it does is it focuses people on what they already know. What the, the neuroscience shows really clear is when you want substantial changes, when you want people working in new ways, being creative and trying new approaches with customers, when, when you want people to use their brains and not just their hands, criticism and fear and anxiety shut down the best parts of our brain. They shut down the decision-making power. They shut down the creativity and innovation space. So what we know, and we know this really clearly, you know, this isn't just like the last two years we did a study. Right. This is 35 years of neuroscience. Right. What we know is if you want to generate that kind of enthusiasm and those quantum leaps where people are bringing the best of themselves to work and they're applying their best thinking to the client, what you want to do is let them play to their strengths rather than playing not to lose. Like, how do I not mess up? You want them playing to win, which is how do I use the best that I have to solve this problem? And so that's where positive psychology really comes to bear on this. As a leader, if you're listening and you're a leader, what you just have to remember is the world's changing a lot faster than it did for Henry Ford in 1900. And we need to change our management style to activate the behaviors that solve problems, not making people into robots. Yeah, yeah. And I think change is something that has become such a constant. And like you talked about, the pace of it is getting so fast now that it it almost feels like on a on a daily or weekly basis we're we're having to incorporate different kinds of change which can be hard for people as individuals and also teams you have mentioned that the way that we interpret the struggle that comes along with change is really what's key to being able to embrace it and move forward so what may we be missing there that we can interpret differently Laura I just wanted to thank you for actually reading the book <laughs> I First love off, reading. <laughs> so I want to express my a, pleasure. <laughs> I wanted to express a little bit of gratitude because I've done enough podcasts to know when somebody actually has read it. I really appreciate <laughs> that. So you're bringing up a really difficult issue, a very important one, which is when we go to do a new behavior, to try to create a new habit, it won't be comfortable. You know, by definition, it means that we're going to do something that's going to feel alien, doing to feel unnatural. That's the nature of moving out of our comfort zone. The only way to get comfort with discomfort is to take on this growth mindset. Now, many of our listeners are going to know about that. That's Carol Dweck, 25, 30 years of evidence on this idea. But I have to tell you, it's still not common in companies and especially in professional services. I just, I have to say there's so many people that still go into work thinking 
with an achievement mindset, which is let me perfectly demonstrate that I know exactly what I'm doing with no mistakes. And that means we won't be learning anything new. We won't be experimenting with something that we can actually teach ourselves. And this growth mindset is really essential if we want to try something new that might not go perfectly the first time. I like to use the phrase that nobody ever walked before they fell. And it's, it's really critical. I can't say enough about it right now, but I dedicated a whole chapter, as you read in the book, on the notion that you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable if you want to learn. Is there a threshold of being too uncomfortable? So it's actually interesting. Our our president, Stephanie, her word for 2021 is uncomfortable. And we're recording this episode in the time of year where, I don't know, maybe some people are starting to break their New Year's resolutions already. And this is like the time of year when everyone tries to implement change. Is there such a thing as taking on too much at once? Should we focus on one thing and try to master change there before moving into something else? Absolutely. I have an idea about this. It's interesting. I do think, Laura, that different people can handle more. And so I I don't want to act like there's no variance, but the approach that I am into using is conduct one of these personal highlight reels and learn from other people's perspective how you make your best impact. Learn from the people who get the impact what the impact is. So that's one thing. And that's new to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot of people think they already know themselves so well until you do one of these. And then you see that the people you're trying to affect see things a little differently than you. So that's step one. Try to figure out what that impact is. Step two would be try to look for the themes and find the places where what's effortless and fun for you makes the big impact on other people. And then I say stretch into that strength. I don't say regurgitate old behaviors. I don't say keep doing the thing that you used to do that worked. What I'm saying is once you identify that signature strength, that superpower, that thing that really, it makes you glow to use it. (laughs) I mean, it really, I have that. I'm kind of using it right now. Uh, And time goes away and it really feels like you're in your zone. And the, the trick of it is to stretch into that, to find ways to, create an even bigger impact using that signature strength. And for me, I really like the way you put it, Laura, work on that one for a while. It it looks like six days, by the way, just like to really put it in the numbers. There's some, yeah, that's very specific. (laughs) It is. It is really specific. There's some researchers here at UCL university of college, London, and they actually did some research on how long does it take to create a new habit? And of course there's variance, but the average was about two months. And if you do something every day, you stretch and you work at that every day, within about two to three months, it becomes the new you. I love all of that. It feels like there are so many things that we can start doing to really embrace change and embrace it in the right way and kind of think about how we can be better leaders and managers and owners of companies. It was my pleasure to both read your book and get to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Um, Where can our listeners go to learn a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing? If you wanted to go to dan-cable.com, everything's available there. I mean, certainly the books and so on, but I also have a podcast of my own where we talk about science. I I teamed up with a comedian and we basically have fun (laughs) with science. And I also things like talks and, you know, TED Talks and things like that. So I just kind of throw everything on there for people that are interested. Well, wonderful. Thanks again so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Laura. 
The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Christopher Eng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read The Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com slash community slash lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by their participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Thank you.